Well, good morning. All right, good. A little bit of life in us. I know it's a rainy day. Added to the fact we have this weird thing we do where we like to take away an hour of sleep. Um, and I, I would be even fine if we ended it. I don't have to have it back in the fall. Let's just stop this madness. But um, nevertheless, for some reason, we still we do this. But we do have reason to rejoice this morning as we turn to the living and abiding Word of God. And I invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, we're going to finish this chapter looking at verses 19 through 30. If you're visiting with us and uh, you don't have a Bible, um, maybe ask the person sitting next to you, raise your hand and one of our ushers in the back can... can, uh, find you a a Bible and and, and help you find where we're um, at this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Hear the word of the Lord. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a full whole year, they met with a church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. We see here in verse 26 of our passage that this mission outreach to the church in Antioch, this church plant, if you would say, in our kind of uh, lingo these days, and just as Jamin was talking about, the Annie Armstrong offering that we'll be collecting on April 3rd helps start new churches. We see mission efforts occurring. But it's interesting, you might have wondered, when did the church, or when did we become known as Christians? We find out here in this text. In verse 26, he says, And in Antioch, in this city, this prominent city of the Roman Empire, the disciples were first called Christians. It's an apt term. It's an appropriate term. And, and simply was a term that means anyone who follows the Christ. 
one who belongs to the Christ. And, and likely, um, scholars debate, was this a derogatory term? Or, or was it just the fact that the Roman officials needed some term to identify this group? They weren't necessarily just like the Jews worshiping at the synagogue. They seemed to be broken off from them. And, and, and as we're going to see in this text, Greeks start buying into this movement. And they're not becoming Jews. So what is this strange new group that's talking about this one known as the Christ? And so they call them Christians. Just because they called them Christians and they recognized that they are those who spoke of Christ, who said that they belonged to Christ, didn't necessarily mean that they understood exactly who they were. You might find this interesting, but Christians were often thought of to be atheists in the ancient world. They were the ones who worship no God. And to us, they'd be like, no, we worship Jesus Christ. But they were known as atheists because they did not have idols like the pagan deities. They did not have temples where they would go in and, and make sacrifices to the gods. And they weren't like the Jews because they too didn't. They had a temple where they offered sacrifice. And I was like, all right, you go and you worship to your God. But these people, they meet in people's homes. And what are they doing? And so rumors would begin to spread. And you can think of this. They referred to one another as family. These groups of people from different backgrounds, ages, races, they referred to one another as brother and sister. And, and Doug Williams, you'll, you'll enjoy this. And they greeted everyone with a holy kiss. If you all know Doug, he wants to enact that here. <laughs> April 3rd business meeting, right? Okay, so these people get together and they start kissing one another, we hear. So rumors began to swirl of the weird activity that would be going on in these people's homes. Furthermore, some were hearing that they were cannibals. Have you heard? They, they drink blood and they eat flesh. Now, what were they talking about? They're talking about the Lord's Supper. They heard these terms that they're, they're, they're drinking the blood of Jesus and eating the flesh of Jesus. And we, we know that these are symbols, but you've got to remember, this, the church has just started. This is something new. And yet, they couldn't put their finger on it, but all they knew was to say, they're Jesus people. Whatever that means, they're Jesus people. Let's call them Christians. And even today, I think there's confusion. Who are these Christians? I worry, though, that the confusion is not about our theological beliefs, as it might have been in, in the early church, but but when I watch the news and when we're spoken of and Christians are brought up of or um, are spoken of and born-again Christians, sometimes the term is evangelical, the way the world now thinks of us is a voting block. A group of a particular theological persuasion or uh, their particular views on gun laws or, or foreign policy or amnesty or pick your political debate you see pastors and christian leaders who who come and they they speak out and they get press conferences not to talk about jesus 
but to endorse their favorite leader. Even on a smaller scale, we too have become, I think, caught up in so many things of this world. The purpose is the mission to accomplish whatever it might be on a worldly scale, and we lose sight of the mission. We forget where our ultimate priorities lie, and we forget the fact that our citizenship is not on earth, but is in heaven. But I think we as Christians can sometimes get sucked up into the ways of the world that we're not really different than the world. We're not like these early Christians that they're like, well, they don't fit in this group, they don't fit in that group, we'll call them Jesus people. No, we're just a political lobbyist group now. Because that's what we're becoming known for. That doesn't mean that we're not trying to be good citizens. That doesn't mean that we don't participate in the political realm. But here's where I want to challenge us as we look at our text this morning. Would people look at us and say, those are Jesus people? Or would they label us by some political thing? Or your sports team? Or your great hobby. What are they going to know you by? That's the reason they get together. Is because of Jesus or because of something else they hear us talking about? What label is the world or the people outside of the walls of this church going to say about the believers who gather here at Oak Park Baptist Church? Are they going to say they're Jesus people? I hope they will. But I want us to look here in our text and see what what made the church in Antioch known as Jesus people. And this is really going back to just basic one-on-one. What does it mean to be a Christian? Because that's what we want to be, right? We are. We confess these things. We're hearing wonderful testimonies of God's grace opening up people's eyes, hearing the word preached, understanding what it means to be a Christian, well, that is exactly what happened here in Antioch. And we see in verse 19, Luke has taken us back, really, to Acts chapter 8, where you remember Stephen was stoned. He was the first Christian martyr, and as a result, Saul, who later becomes Paul, had, had undergone a great persecution on the church and caused people to scatter. They fled for their lives. And this is what Luke is referring to in verse 19. He says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. In other words, this was a region of Gentile, Greek, non-Jewish territory. People were going back maybe to where they were born. But these are all Jews. They're, they're, They're living in Jerusalem and they're scattered. And what they do, just like in chapter 8, if you want to look just in in verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That's what they did. So despite the persecution for the word, for the message of Jesus Christ, they were scattered and they went about preaching. Well, we see almost a similar thing happening here. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution, what were they doing? They were speaking the word. They were preaching. They were teaching. But Luke brings in a little note that should be quite interesting. But they were speaking to no one except Jews. We're kind of still in this 
territory of change, right? Last week we saw that Peter had to be uh, adjusted through a vision, a dream, and, and realizing that no people are off limits. Well, that's just Peter. We still have the rest of the church that's got to get on board. And so Luke takes us to another account that's happening. We don't know if this is afterwards or right about the same time. But as people are scattering, by far, they're going to the, town, the region of Phoenicia and the towns of Cyprus and Antioch, but they're only, when they're evangelizing, speaking to Jews. But something changes. Verse 20, but there were some. Some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists. Maybe your, your Bible has a little footnote, or maybe it translates it, Greeks. The idea here is what you need to know is they're not Jews. Now they're talking to the other people, right? And what happens? They're preaching the Lord Jesus. And in verse 21, the, Lord of, the hand of the Lord was upon them, and a great number believed. And this is what is causing the confusion because now you can't just say, oh, this is just a Jewish movement. Now non-Jews are coming in, which is us, right? Gentiles, as we call them, the Greeks, the pagans, those who would sacrifice to idols and worship in the temple cults are now getting in this Jesus movement. And he says here about them, and this is what we find out, who are Christians? They are those who believe. In other words, here's the first point, Christians trust in the Lord Jesus. And I use the word trust in, in a particular way because oftentimes in our world we think of believed as merely intellectual assent. Oh, I believe that Jesus existed. I believe some facts about Jesus. But no, what we need to understand is that belief results in a trust. A trust in Jesus. And people who trust in Jesus, Christians, they trust regardless, we're seeing here, of their ethnicity, their background, their culture. This group was diverse yet distinct. What do I mean by that? Christians are people who trust in Lord Jesus, and we're a diverse group, but we're distinct. What do I mean by that? We're diverse in that all peoples are included. We saw that last Sunday. Peter had to learn that lesson. He went to Cornelius, an Italian Roman centurion who, had a, who was a leader of over 100 soldiers. Remember, the Romans are part of the people who killed Jesus. They're not excluded. No one is excluded. We're a diverse people. You look around this room. We got our, our middle school students. How was your um, winter retreat? Was it good? Yeah, they're still asleep. So... <clears throat> I guess that was good. They hung out late last night. And I think of, uh, of the diversity. You just look in this room. I think it was just a couple of Sundays ago. I remember Miss Edie LaDuke was sitting right here in the midst of our college students. <laughs> it was awesome. Or I think about when uh, um, Pastor Mike had the Amazing Grays movie day. And our college students were there not only serving them but watching the movie too hanging out, diverse, old, young. We have different economic statuses here, social backgrounds, ethnicities. We're a diverse group, 
but yet we're to be distinct in the sense that we're unique. We can't be labeled, oh, you're, you're, you're part of this sociological group and, and that one. No, we are distinct in that we are a new people. And this is a great theological point that we need to realize. And in the early church, they, they thought of each other, and this is kind of crazy. We sing songs that use this language, but it sometimes doesn't resonate. They saw themselves as a new race. Sometimes in the early church, they called the church a third race. There was Jew, Gentile, and the church of God. Paul even uses that language and to the Corinthians says give no offense to the Jew the Gentile or the church of God and I want you to see this if you go to Ephesians chapter 2 and see this Paul often gives us in doctrinal form an explanation what we're seeing in Luke's in the story form so this is what Paul says in, in Ephesians so you keep going to your right until you get to the book of Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to pick up in verse 14, he's talking about Jesus who has made peace between Jew and Gentile. Jew and non-Jew. And non-Jew means the rest of the world. He's making one new people we're going to see here. And Paul says about Jesus, he says, For he himself is our peace, who made us both, that's Jew-Gentile, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. Meaning the Old Testament had lots of rules, food laws, circumcision laws, things you could do on Saturday, the way the clothes you wear, how you plant your, your seeds in the garden that made you ethnically Jewish. And if you wanted to be part of the people of God, you had to do those things. Well, Jesus comes and he fulfills all of this. And in fulfilling it, anyone who trusts in Jesus doesn't have to do those things. And he goes, that he might create in himself, what? One new man in the place of the two, so making peace. One new man, one new humanity. See, we are all in Adam, which means the first human being. We are all of one man, right? But the one man sinned. And because of his sin, he brought death into the world and death spread to all men, all women, all people because we've all sinned. We're all infected. And what's going to happen is that we die. But if we're in Christ, Scripture calls him a new Adam. And he creates a new people. This is what's going on here. Oh, we're all different but yet we're distinct. We're, we're going to be this new people to live in a new creation, which we call heaven. A new heavens and a new earth where the curse of sin is no longer there. And so when we gather here on, on, on Sunday mornings, we gather as the church, we're this new people made up of different types of people. Set apart for this new creation. So Jesus creates a creates really what the world cannot, right? We're in this political um, season right now. And, and I've been thinking, even regardless of, of where people are on the spectrum of their political views of the candidates out there, here's the bottom line. We, don't want, we want peace, 
and we want unity of people, right? However you're going to accomplish that or promise to accomplish that, that's what they're promising, right? But here's the deal. Ultimately, we're the only people who are going to experience that because we have the only leader who can accomplish that. And his name is Jesus Christ. And we are awaiting for his return in which he's going to gather this new people to live in this new world that he is going to create. So what does that look like here? Just thinking about that being a diverse people who trust in Christ. And we were talking about this in my community group last week. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that we need to start finding different ethnicities out there and, and try to bring them in? Well, at one level, yes. But at another level, we need to recognize that we should reflect here the diversity of our city. You can't really become something that our city's not, right? You can't have, I'm trying to think here, um, if we have, and maybe we do have this, but a significant Russian population, we, we should be trying to reach them. But if there's not a significant R Russian population in Jeffersonville, Indiana, there's no, sense, there's no way we can make that be reflective in our church. You understand what I'm saying? We should reflect the demographic diversity of our city. And so we don't want to be caught up in verse 19 that we speak the word to no one except those who are already like us, right? But rather, we need to be like the sum of them who spoke to the others in our community so that we begin to be more and more reflective of that community what do we do? How, do? how does this occur? It's not just diversity for diversity's sake, is it? No. We are people who trust in Christ by hearing the word of God, right? That's what they did. They spoke, they preached Jesus to people. So it's Jesus that we should be talking about. And we saw this last week when Peter came to Cornelius. What did he talk about? He talked about Jesus' life. He talked about Jesus' death talked about Jesus' resurrection, and talked about Jesus coming back to judge the living and the dead. We should be talking about that all the time. So that when people, even if they're like, man, these people are weird. We're talking about this guy who lived 2,000 years ago, and they're talking about him coming back. That's okay if that's where the confusion lies. But at least they're saying they're talking about Jesus. It's our job to begin to explain that. And when Peter says that they're going to ask for the reason of the hope that you have, it's only when we're talking about Jesus preaching the word. But it's not only just preaching the word, but notice why people believe. Why did people believe? The word's going out, but verse 21 is where I want us to kind of think about here. And the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. Brothers and sisters, I know we have aspirations to meet, to reach our city. Jamin just praying, church plants going out, we pray. We're, we're collecting an offering for our denomination, planting new churches in Indianapolis and all over the United States. But no matter how hard we work, unless the hand of the Lord is upon the work that we're doing, it, will leave, it won't accomplish anything. So what does that look like practically for us? 
This doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean that we don't exert gospel effort. But it does look like we should be a people pleading with the Lord. Bless our efforts. Let your hand be upon us as we go out to our workplaces, to school, when we talk to our neighbors. The efforts of organizing gospel efforts here in our church. We have things that are just beginning to get off the ground. Thinking of Louisville Rescue Mission, getting involved a little bit more in Choices for Women. Um, we're, we're, we're trying to beef up our, our mercy ministry here. Um, we've got Jeff High football, possibly. We have some willing to go, jail ministry. And who knows what else comes about, right? But we could be doing all these things, working our tails off. But if we're doing it in our own strength, relying on our own volition, trusting in our own giftedness and our own ability to, to thwart off um, um, rebuttals to the Christian faith, we will accomplish nothing. What we want is that the hand of the Lord would be upon this church. And so we need to be those who pray and ask the Lord to do so. Lord, bless our efforts. And so maybe tonight as you meet, those of you who meet in your community group or this week, whenever you meet, here's what I want to encourage us. Yes, our, our usual prayer requests, but let's spend some time pleading with the Lord. Lord, may your hand be upon the efforts that are going on that we too might see a great number who believe. Not only are Christians those who trust or those who continue in the Lord Jesus. You don't just begin by initial, all right, I believe, but you continue. Look in verse 22. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Which, let's just stop right there. The report of what? The fact that many people believed and turned to the Lord. They turned from their pagan ways. And for some of the Jews, they turned from their sinful ways. And they embraced the Messiah. And so it's now public knowledge. This is what we do in baptism, right? Baptism is a public decoration. I'm now on Team Jesus. And this was so many people saying, I'm on Team Jesus. And they didn't have nice church buildings where we did baptisms with not so warm water. But uh, we, 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 they would go out probably to the public area and you'd see this big crowd of people going. What are they doing? And you hear them give testimony. I used to worship such and such God, but now I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's baptize you. And family members are watching them. What's going on? The word. There's these weirdo people out there, and they are now saying they're of this one called the Christ. They began that way, it became public knowledge. And word even gets back to Jerusalem came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas to Antioch to see, hey, let's, let's see what's going on. And I love this, verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Oh, he saw what God was doing. 
and he saw it for what it was, the grace of God working in people's lives, all these diverse people coming together. And I think Barnabas is an example to us because sometimes when we see change, new people, different people, we're like, oh, who brought them here? But Barnabas is glad. He sees it for what it really is. It's the grace of God working in all people. And so what did he do? He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He says, you've made this profession of faith. You've put on the team jersey. Now I'm going to exhort you to remain faithful, to continue, to not jump ship, to not quit the team, because the road ahead, though glorious, is still going to be a bumpy road. And no doubt there are probably people struggling just like some of you are. And Barnabas had to say, let me encourage you. That's what his name means, encouragement. We're a new people. And our Savior is preparing a new place for us. Let's continue. We see here that he did this for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Whenever we see that full of the Holy Spirit in the, old, in the Acts, what does that mean? They're about to preach, right? They're full of the Holy Spirit, meaning they're full of the Word. It just pours out like a fountain. What is he exhorting them to continue in? The, he's doing so through the preaching of the Word. And so here's what I want us to see. We begin by God's grace. That's what Barnabas saw. He saw the grace of God. We begin by God's grace, but we also continue by God's grace. We don't somehow begin to now work our salvation to keep ourselves saved. But there are means of God's grace that we're exhorted to continue in. And we see this beginning here in verse 24, that that's what the Word does. This is why we have sermons. This is why we, we bathe ourselves in the Scriptures, because God's grace works through them to work in our hearts and in our minds to transform us, to give us direction. It's a, it's a light unto my path, a lamp unto my feet. And so Barnabas is exhorting them, verse 24, and look what happens. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So more people came to faith in Christ because the initial Christians were continuing to be faithful. So they're continuing in the Word. They're, they're being exhorted. They're living out the Christian faith. They're, they're remaining loyal to Christ. And as a result of their life, more people are added. And look at what Barnabas has to do. Verse 25, we saw this conversion of Saul. He's been gone for a while. But in verse 25, Barnabas left. He says, all right, there's too many people here for me to do this by myself. I need some helpers. So he goes and he went to Tarsus. That's where Saul is from, who's later going to be the Apostle Paul. Or he is now, he just hadn't gotten his new name. He looks for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. I got work for you to do, brother. It's your time. And so Barnabas brings him there, and what do they do? For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. They began teaching them for a whole year. They began exhorting them to remain faithful. And I want you to see that this doesn't happen 
anywhere else but in the church. For a whole year, they met with the church. So this is another means of God's grace to keep you. It is through His Word being preached and taught and instructed, but it also happens in the church with the context of people, right? Who exhort you, encourage you like Barnabas. Some of us are gifted in different ways, and we come alongside of one another and say, hey, keep on going, keep on going. Some of us are on high points, so we encourage those on low points so that when the tables are turned, that we too are being encouraged. And we begin serving one another. And it was this phenomenon that caused the Roman officials and those people in the city of Antioch to say, who are these people? And they were first called Christians. Those are what Jesus' people do. Just a note of encouragement. He exhorts them to remain faithful. It's the idea of continuing, persevering, being steadfast in the Lord. Why does he do that? Because there is always the danger of people walking away. Say, I'm done. This didn't work out the way I thought it would. Or this sin or temptation is luring me, and it looks more enticing than Jesus. And let me encourage you, some of you are in that boat right now. For whatever reason, whether you're struggling financially, whether you're being afflicted by temptation or sin, or just doubts are creeping in, and you're being tempted, and and let me encourage you, remain in the church. Remain around God's people because guess what? We're all struggling too. You're not alone. You're not some freak who's by yourself. We're all freaks in here together. (laughs) We're working hard, trusting God's grace, being reminded. But those people who are most likely to walk away are also those who sever themselves from the means of God's grace see this all the time when we're we're talking about those who are struggling and often not always but often those who are on the verge of leaving are also the ones who never really got in they thought oh i'll just sit on the outskirts i'm not really calling you guys out or anything (laughs) figuratively they sit on the outskirts and you're we appeal to you come hey would you like to come to my community group oh i just don't have time Hey, do you want to get plugged in a Sunday school class? Ah, oh, you know, it's too early. Hey, you want to come to the family gathering? Ah, oh, got you know, it's, it's got stuff to do. And there's always something. You know what? When you want us to all be in is when your crisis hits. Hey, guys, I really don't feel the love anymore. We're going through a tough time and no one's called. Hey, we're going through a tough time and, and, and I've asked for help, but, you know, I don't know anybody. We hear it, that's a regular thing. And we say, yeah, that's why we were calling you earlier to get in. Get in. And we're pleading now, but it's a lot harder. (laughs) It's a lot harder. Because when we send out, hey, would so-and-so want to help so-and-so? Some of you are like, who's that? Don't be that person. Like in the church in Antioch, they gathered together to hear the word, to be exhorted to continue. So Christians, we trust in the Lord. But we're also those who continue in the Lord. Then we come down here, and it's very interesting what happens. They they show their faith here. 
Christians minister to others in the Lord Jesus. Look in verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up. So it's imagining they're probably gathering on this Sunday morning or Sunday evening. The prophet stands up, and he foretolds by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. It means there's not going to be any food. There's trouble coming. So look at what the disciples do. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. This is what's going on here. One level, this is expressing the genuineness of their faith. This is going to be a big conflict because Gentiles are in the church. The Jerusalem church, which is all predominantly Jew, is hearing of these Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. And all they can think of is, well, those are the people who like do weird stuff in temples. Those are the people who, who are, are pagans, and they're filthy, and they're unclean. Yeah, but the Bible says they're not, or Jesus said they're not anymore. Yeah, but they still do these weird things. I can't hang out with them. And they're getting ready to get a gift from this Gentile church. Saying, hey, we're here. We support you. Thank you for sending your people who shared the gospel with us. We're going to reciprocate in showing our love for you. So they express the genuineness of their faith. True faith begins to show itself through action. That's where works play. Works aren't the foundation of our, our salvation, but they are evidence that we've truly been saved. And so Christians minister to one another, expressing the genuineness of their faith. This is where the brotherly love truly comes to, to play. We, we see each other as family, even though we got our cousin Eddie's here. You know, we still love them. But it also looks like being good stewards of their resources so that they can serve others. i got about five minutes to preach another sermon. But I'm not going to go, I'm going to kind of make this a side thing. But what are we seeing here? We're seeing them, they're collecting an offering and they're giving financially. And here I just want to kind of lay this out that that is an expression of our faith. Christians give their time, their resources, their material blessings to others because we trust the Lord. That's what it looks like continuing in the work. We're part of the team. We're giving ourselves to it. And I kind of want to just lay out just a few principles maybe to help us as we close. What, what does that look like? And in the New Testament, there's sometimes confusion. I hear it even in the church. You know, what does it look like? Do we give a, a tithe, 10%? Well, let me just make a comment about that. Jesus just broke down the wall of the law where the 10% tax was, Right? That's included of the fulfillment. And so there's a sense in which, hey, we're not required. Now, some of you are like, oh, I like this. Just hold on, okay, hold on. We're not required in the Old Testament to give a 10% tax to the Lord. That's why the food laws are taken away. The Sabbath laws, all those laws find fulfillment in Christ, including the tithe. That's why in the New Testament you don't ever find it. You never see them saying they all collected a tenth. You see that in the Old Testament, you don't see it in the New. So what is going on? 
We see just a glimpse of it here. It says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability. I think this is, I don't know what some of the other translations um, um, render it, but it's, as anyone prospered, is what that kind of woodenly comes out in the Greek. As anyone prospered, and you kind of get the idea, according to his ability, but the idea is that as anyone prospered materially, I use some of it to give. I want us to see another offering, a very similar one for the same people, just a different time. But I want us to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is where we'll close. Paul gives a little bit more explanation about how to give. This is where the 10% kind of caveat comes in. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Again, Paul's collecting an offering for the saints in Jerusalem. They apparently were very poor. The famine had, this is post famine, this is another offering from the churches. And I want you to see in, in chapter 8, look in verse 3. He's talking about the Macedonians and other churches as an example. And he says, for they gave according to their means. So here's principle number one. When you're thinking about your offering on Sunday mornings, when we're talking about Annie Armstrong, you're to give in proportion to your means, he says. Jump over to verse 8. Now what does this look like? He says, I say this not as a command, but to, pro- but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. It shows the genuineness of your faith. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, might, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He says, hey, Christ, out of his abundance, gave to us, gave himself, so that we might become rich. He uses a principle. He says, in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also desired to do it. You agreed a year ago to give to this offering. So now finish doing it well, so that you, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Now look at what he says in verse 13. Because some of you are like, okay, well, if I give a certain amount, I'm now going to be poor. Look at what verse 13 says. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your, your abundance at the present time should meet their need so that their abundance may supply your need. What's he saying? Those of you who are in abundance, share, give of your means. And the idea is if, we're a truly loving family that when and if the tables turn, others in their abundance will share and meet your need. You've given your means, but it's not just means, but it's a sacrificial giving. Come back to verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 3. He's talking about the church of Macedonia. They gave according to their means. And he goes, and as I can testify, beyond their means of their own free will. It cost them. They gave sacrificially. Came from their heart, their own free will. Go over to chapter 9. 
kind of explains this and puts this kind of really clearly. He said, the point is this, chapter 9, verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So here's what it looks like. It looks like giving out of your means, a proportion of your abundance, which, by the way, is most of us, we mostly live in excess and abundance. Give sacrificially, but not reluctantly. You do it out of your heart, out of your love, out of your thanksgiving, the genuineness of your faith. You give out of gratitude. Now, what does this have to do with the 10%? I do think 10% is a good goal. Think about it. We're going to live off of 90% of our income, and we're going to give 10% of it to missions. But here's the deal. For some of you, that is not sacrificial. Some of you, 10% would be way too easy. That gets you off the hook. Well, Jesus doesn't demand just 10%. He actually demands 100 because it's not just your, your paycheck, it's your life, it's your house, it's all your resources. Everything is to be given unto the Lord. Now some of you, it would be sacrificial to give 2%, 1%. It would cost you. But it's to be out of the abundance of your heart. And so here's what I want you to think through as we prepare for this offering, as we live out Christian lives. These principles, you know, we trust Christ, we continue in Christ, that looks like we do the work of Christ. We minister in the name of Christ, and that looks like us giving to things. I want you to think through those principles. And I would venture to say, some of us haven't ever thought about, hmm, what would it look like for me to give sacrificially out of the abundance that the Lord has given to me? Start thinking about it. That's one of the things that my wife and I do. We try to think, hey, where are we living in excess? Where could we be giving more? And so that's really going to be a matter of worship, right? A matter of worship. And I would venture to say that we can cut out maybe some minute things of lattes, maybe one, one less latte that week. Maybe you're thinking about, oh, March Madness is coming up. I got an extra little overtime. I'm going to get me a nice 70-incher, ultra HD. Sure. But maybe you could also use that to support missions. I'm not going to give it, force you under compulsion, but I'm going to appeal to you. What might that look like? And maybe if we start living like that, and I do see it here in our church, and I pray that we continue in that way, people will be saying, wow, those, those people are Jesus people. They do some weird things. But they're all about Jesus. They keep doing it about Him. And maybe the hand of the Lord's upon us. Those people who think we're weird, they'll, they'll join us. That's our prayer, all right? I'm going to pray for us, those of us who are going to do the baptism. we got about 12 minutes. It'll be quick because the water's cold. <laughs> and then we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father,
Lord, I pray that you're working in us. What does it look like to be Jesus' people? That we'd be a people who trust you, not just in the beginning, but we continue trusting you. And that trust shows itself out in that we love one another. We give of our time, resources, and abilities to meet needs, to further advance of the gospel. Because we realize we're not storing up treasure here on earth. We're laying up treasure in heaven, which are people that lasts. So, Lord, I pray that even maybe tonight in community groups or this week when we're praying, Lord, you would also be working in us and, and we would just have a lens. Am I giving out of my means? Am I giving sacrificially? Am I doing it out of the abundance of my heart? If I give any thought to that, what it might look like. Maybe it's not finances where some of us are in order, but some of us just need to serve, do something, play in the game. Lord, I pray that you would call us, that you would move us, not just to give of our resources, but to give of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.